Welcome to the Food Junkies Podcast. Here, we aim to provide you with the experience, strength, and hope of professionals actively working on the front lines in the field of food addiction. The purpose of our show is to educate you, the listener, and increase overall awareness about food addiction as a disease with abstinence as the solution. Here, we talk about all things recovery. Most importantly, how to thrive rather than just survive. So stay positive, make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread. Welcome to the Food Junkies podcast. I am your co-host today, along with Clarissa Kennedy. My name is Dr. Vera Tarman. Today, we are speaking with Dr. Nina Schultz author of bestseller, The Big Fat Surprise. Nina Teicholz is an investigative journalist who was one of the first to publicly challenge the medical nutritional hegemony that low-fat diets are good for you. And in particular, she was the first to make the argument that replacing saturated fat with vegetable seed oils was not useful in preventing heart disease. She boldly advocated that not only should we be eating more fat for good health, but we would do ourselves no harm by eating more saturated fat. Nina Teicholz attended Yale and Stanford University, where she studied biology and American studies. She got her master's degree from Oxford University. Her writing has been published in the BMJ, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Atlantic, the Independent, the New Yorker, to name just a few. Her 2014 book, The Big Fat Surprise, became a New York Times bestseller. This was the product of research into hundreds of published scientific studies on nutrition and human health. Despite making waves with the medical nutritional complex, her book was named a 2014 best book by The Economist, The Wall Street Journal, Forbes, and Mother Jones. It marked her status as a whistleblower. The BMJ, or the otherwise known as British Medical Journal, former editor wrote, Teicholz has done a remarkable job this is a good, great quote, in analyzing the weak science, strong personalities, vested interests, and political expediency of nutritional science. Heinschultz has even testified before the Canadian Senate and U.S. Department of Agriculture about the need to reform our current dietary guidelines. Currently, she is founder and chair of the Nutrition Coalition, a nonprofit group that promotes evidence-based nutrition policy. We are so thrilled at Food Junkies to have you on our podcast. Welcome. Thank you. What a nice and generous introduction. It's great to be here. Thank you. So we always start with the personal story. I understand from your story that you were a vegetarian for 25 years, so that this is a complete turnaround, your stand now from where you started. And that in fact, now you've even been criticized as being an ally of the beef and dairy industry. So what happened to get you from one to the other? And then of course, into the whole controversy. I didn't. So I'm a journalist. I came to this just curious about, I'd actually been assigned a story about trans fats by a magazine here in the United States called Gourmet Magazine. That kind of plunged me into the world of dietary fat. I spoke to scientists who would like hang up the phone on me if I started talking about questions about the low-fat diet or scientists who told me that their job was to stand up and harass other scientists at meetings that industry, specifically like the vegetable industry, had paid them to harass scientists. I just couldn't believe the this landscape of what I had thought to be a scientific field, that it was so full of vested interests in politics and corruption, and also like a huge amount of science I had never 
I just had never really encountered. So that really sent me down the rabbit hole. And for nine years, I researched this book. It was originally going to be on trans fats and it ended up being about really mainly about saturated fats and trading them out for vegetable oils and why that was such a bad idea and based on weak science. It wasn't about my own dietary personal journey, really. I like, even though I would say my young life was was really plagued by being overweight, not feeling attractive, dealing with not having a good diet, avoiding meat, butter, never like I. It wasn't until I was a good ways into my research that I turned like the mirror around and said, hey, <laughs> why don't you know, you should start doing this for yourself. And so I, I started eating red meat again after 25 years where I really hadn't eaten it. I ate cheese, butter, all these foods that had been forbidden to me. And I found that I was able to lose weight, my cholesterol, everything, all my markers and lipids and everything in my blood improved. My skin condition on my face went away. My sinus infections went away. While I didn't come to this with a health agenda, it just turned out to really have made, did have a huge impact on my health. But it really was just my curiosity as a journalist, seeing this incredible story, which by the way, I myself did not believe really up to the very last minute of when I was supposed to turn the final manuscript, going back and rereading all the studies saying, can we, this can't be right. Can, am I sure, am I absolutely sure that this is going to go out and not embarrass me and be proven wrong? So it was really my having to convince myself about the science, which that took a very long time. It's a profound, discomforting notion to think that everything you've believed and followed for decades could be wrong. Like that, that takes for many people, for me, it just took a lot of time to intellectually to come around to that position. So you actually talked yourself into it. You weren't a believer at the beginning. You became a believer. Not at all. No, I was hugely skeptical. I think like most people, I just felt like meat must be bad. I didn't even know why. And fat must be bad. You would never, I know I used to, I spent my whole young adulthood eating salads just in vinegar, convincing myself like, oh, that's delicious. I just, though I had just received ideas, but they were powerful. They were, and it, and it takes a long time, I think, to convince oneself that it's, that something you had believed for so long and principles you lived by. That's the thing about food. Like you live them three times a day or two times a day, you're eating them. So you just, you feel them so deeply. What you mentioned about my now being considered a, an ally of the meat and dairy industry. I actually had never met a rancher, never met a guy with a cowboy hat who raised cattle until after my book was published never got money from anybody in that industry other than when my book came out. This is actually a funny story. When my book came out, there was an interest in among people who who raised cattle in the book because like for them, they had they felt that they were killing people like they had these people who had been raising cattle for four generations in their family. And then all and when around 1960, because of the American Heart Association, they started to believe that they were doing something wrong. So for them, they read my book and felt like it was a very important revelation for them to realize they weren't actually harming people or that they could feel good again about what they were doing. So I actually had two guys like fly into New York City where I live from the cattle industry to say, are you for real? <laughs> Who are you? <laughs> I remember meeting them for lunch. They're like, we just had to come and see for ourselves. Are you like some kind of 
industry plant or who are you? So I did end up, you know, giving quite a few speeches to people who raise cattle and people in the meat industry. And but that's some years ago now. I don't do that as much anymore. And it's a shame because the politics are such that if you even associate with people in the meat industry, like even talk to them, it's it people will label you an advocate or part of their industry agenda when nothing could be farther from the truth. But that's just the politics of the way this field works. Um, yeah, you've mentioned your book, and I want to really highlight that. So the book, The Big Fat Surprise, I'm going to use a quote of yours. You say, my book has been called a nutritional thriller. And it is. It's a really good book, people. If you just want to read a book that's the page turner, it tells how personalities, politics, bias, and bad science intertwine to create the last 50 years of nutritional policy. So can you tell us a little bit about something about the personalities or the politics or the bad science? I'm a doctor, so I've learned how to read science, but most of us don't. And how do we know what's good science and what's bad science? Yeah. And I would say even most doctors don't know how to read the science. Like they, they're not taught really in medical school how to dig into the data or read much behind the abstract of a medical journal piece. That's a big question. My book is the story that I think is most famous that comes out of my book that I really researched in tremendous detail is the story of Ansel Keys, who was a professor at the University of Minnesota, who really was the critical personality in creating and promoting the idea that saturated fat and cholesterol cause heart disease. That was his baby. It was called the diet heart hypothesis. And he, because he had this outsized, extremely aggressive kind of charismatic personality, and he was able to promote his idea. First, there was this hallmark event of the President Eisenhower's heart attack in 1955, which really trained and focused the attention of the entire nation on what caused heart disease, which was a mystery. Heart disease had been extremely rare in the early 1900s all over the world including in the UK. And then it had risen quickly by in by the 20s and 30s to become the number one leading killer of really it was men at the time, primarily. Women did, were not so affected. And the question is, what caused heart disease? There were various theories. It could be vitamin deficiency. That was one very prominent theory. Auto, rising tide of auto exhaust with more cars in the road. Another theory, the type A personality, worry yourself to death have a heart attack. That was another theory. But it was Ansel Keys's personal charisma and aggression and that was able to transmit his idea to the forefront of all others. And he was able to get himself on the American Heart Association Nutrition Committee and really like implant like the DNA of his ideas such that the American Heart Association became the first organization anywhere in the world to suggest that the all men and later became women too avoid replace saturated fat with polyunsaturated fats avoid dietary cholesterol don't eat egg yolks and generally restrict fat as part of their primary line of prevention against heart disease that's really the beginning of it all and ansel keys was the one who made that happen and that's so, personalities and politics right there yeah and like throughout the book there are also stories about and we don't have to go into it now but the stories of the various corporations food industry corporations principally who were involved at every step in the way in the case of the american heart association they were virtually launched as a national organization by procter and gamble maker of crisco oil which then benefited greatly from the advice to replace saturated fats let's just say butter with margarine or animal fats with oils 
And those oils were touted as like medical products and actually promoted more polyunsaturated oils, the more polyunsaturated, the better. So that was the foundation that allowed those products, which also were already cheaper than animal fats. So were preferred for that reason as well. But they were enabled to rise to such an extent due to the support from the medical industry, primarily the American Heart Association. There's no product that we now consume more of that has risen to become a greater percent of our calories from virtually zero to maybe nine or 10% of all calories consumed than vegetable oils. They are the great story of the 20th century in terms of the change in our diet. So that's just part of the corporate stories, which really are woven throughout the book. And there's there's just so many other stories, like the story of how the Mediterranean diet became like this sort of hate, just this haloed, hallowed diet that everybody thinks is the best one that'll prevent heart disease and well, more personalities. The, I think Walter Willett is another personality in this story. He's, he was longtime head of the Harvard School of Nutrition and and he's now emeritus. He latched onto the American to the Mediterranean diet. He fell in love with the Mediterranean as Ansel Keys had before him. And he was like much better food <laughs> in Greece and Italy and than people were used to having in the US. And he became convinced, due to some scholars in Italy and Greece, that this was a better diet that had prevented heart disease based on like extremely weak and thin evidence. But it became something that he really catapulted him to fame. It's one way to look at it is, is that these dietary concepts make nutritionists famous. I mean, like invited to all the conferences, the top of the field, Ansel Keys was easily the most influential and nutrition scientist of the entire 20th century. And then after him, I would say Walter Willett is the next one. You are a world-renowned figure and you are, and that's accompanied by all of the perks that go with that. If you are able to introduce a dietary, a successful dietary concept, and that's what Walter Willett did with the Mediterranean diet. Another story. The other thing I wanted to address along the same lines, you mentioned bad science. And just for people who don't know this, to read a research study right through, you only would do that if you're actually doing research in that area. Most of the time you're reading the abstracts and you're hoping you're going to get some sort of information. So to determine whether something is weak or not weak is it's only the journalists who would tell us that, like Gary Tobes and then you, both of your books, like they're amazing because you spent time far more than an academic would spend time. I really want to stress this because you reviewed tons of data to their nth degree. Do you want to say something about how bad this science is? I want to say I want to say a couple things. One is that Gary Tobbs and I are able to do what we do because we are not constrained by academics. We do not depend on getting research grants at, from the NIH for our work. We do not depend on getting our papers published, being invited to conferences. If we were like every academic out there, we would not have the autonomy to write so freely. They really don't. Academics are punished for going too far outside of the status quo consensus. And that's why the knowledge in this field has ironically been, has moved forward due to the work of journalists. Academics actually have very little leeway. And to the extent that I have written a number of papers with academics as my co-authors, but they're people who tend to be at the end of their careers or they're just retired. They're people who have more freedom to say what they actually believe. That's not true of young scholars. So that's just touching a little bit on the subject of why it's so hard to get good nutrition science. But I will say 
On the subject of strong versus weak science, there is something that everybody can, even the, you know, the, any person in their, in their kitchen with the newspaper can understand about science. And that is, but there's mainly two types of studies in science. There's something called a randomized controlled clinical trial, an actual experimental test where they take a group of people, they give one a placebo or control something, and they give the other people the real pill or the diet or whatever it is, the intervention. That's an actual test. That is the only kind of science that shows cause and effect. And when you read this, when you read a newspaper story, magazine story, you want to see the word clinical trial, trial. That is the kind of evidence that you can trust because there are bad trials. I'm not saying they're all good, but that is the only kind of evidence that demonstrates cause and effect. You cannot get, or until recently, you couldn't really get a medical pill. You couldn't get a, from your doctor. They Nothing could be prescribed without a clinical trial because that's the rigorous science. If you see a, a, an article that says this is associated with that, this is linked to that, this may cause that is weak evidence and comes from a different kind of scientific study called an observational or epidemiological study. They just follow people over a long period of time, the group of people, and they see who in the end dies and who has heart disease. And then they try to get a sense of what do they eat or do they exercise or whatever. But that's very weak data because for many reasons, but I'll just give you one of them, which is that people are asked to self-report their data. Pretty much everybody lies about what they eat. They, oh, did you eat, did you eat that much chocolate? No, I didn't. So there's, those are just very unreliable sources of information. So that kind of language linked to may cause is associated with is basically such weak science. It used to be the kind of science that would just supposed to generate a hypothesis and was not meant to be disseminated to the public. But now we're at a different stage now. But just that science that you just like, it could be true or it could equally well not be true. There's a couple of studies that are quoted frequently, like the China study from years ago and right. the Southern Countries study that are supportive of this low-fat perspective. Do you want to comment on those studies? Because yeah. they're used all the time to this day. Yeah. So those are both what we would, the kind of study I was describing is a weak study. They show associations. Let's just take them both. The seven country study is considered like a foundational study for the Ansel Keys's diet heart hypothesis. It's like the bedrock study there. It's more cited and quoted than any other study in the history of nutrition science but it's an observational study that only shows an association. And it purported to show an association between people eating high amounts of saturated fat and their likelihood of dying from heart disease. When they went back and reanalyzed the data, they found that actually what was most strongly associated with heart disease, sweets, pastries, desserts, in other words, refined carbohydrates and sugar were actually what was best associated with those poor outcomes. And there's a million other problems with that study, but essentially weak evidence. The China study is maybe even worse because they didn't follow individuals. They just took over time, they just took country level data, which is even less reliable. And then they made associations between people who had low protein, I think, and were likely to die. One of the, I looked at that study and the main thing I noted was never published in a peer-reviewed journal, never peer-reviewed. It's published in a supplement of a journal. Supplements are not subject to the same standards of peer review as a regular journal article. 
Otherwise, it's been disseminated in books. It's had an amazing public relations career and life, but it has not been reviewed by fellow scientists. The reality is people on low-protein diets do not live longer and are not healthier. Protein is an absolutely essential nutrient for life. So how did you then get from, I guess it was from the research, because you looked at the research at the causation, you moved not just from that's weak science, but you actually went as far as to say, hey, saturated fat is good. So I think that there's various stages of the argument. One is to say saturated fats have been unfairly vilified. Let's just let them out of jail, right? So don't avoid them. I think that is the strongest argument that I make in my book and in my work, which is to say, and the next level is to say there are many foods that are very healthy. Dairy and meat have a lot of nutrients, complete proteins that humans are most able to absorb that contain saturated fats. And we should not be avoiding those foods because we will miss out on nutrients. We shouldn't avoid those foods based on their saturated fat content. That would be a mistake. The next level is to say, are saturated fats in some way beneficial for health? Is there a reason we should eat them? I think that's like a somewhat weaker argument in the sense that I would not really advise people to eat sticks of butter, although it does work for some people. It is true that saturated fats are the only food known to raise what's called your good cholesterol, your HDL cholesterol. If your HDL is low and you go to your doctor and they say you can drink red wine and you can exercise and that'll raise it a little bit, but what will raise it a lot is if you eat more saturated fat. And also saturated, the more saturated fat you eat, the lower your risk of stroke. So I think those are a couple of arguments that can be made in favor of eating more saturated fat. I think there are very strong arguments that can be made for eating saturated fats instead of polyunsaturated vegetable oils, which is the exact opposite of what we've been told, given that those seed oils are so they're easily oxidized and subject to, they create hundreds of oxidation products, which create inflammation in the body, which is linked to heart disease and also been shown in clinical trials to cause cancer. So I think it's always better to opt for saturated fats over polyunsaturated fats. Just, just for people listening, a good example of a polyunsaturated would be like the blended version of a Crisco? It, it depends what Crisco is made of. It's made of different things nowadays. Anything like safflower, sunflower, canola, soybean oil, any of those seed yeah. oils are polyunsaturated fats. Okay. Now, actually, Chrissy and I were talking before came about saturated fats. And what do you say about some people, their triglycerides will go up and their HDL will go up, but their total cholesterol will go up too. And is there a point at which we should worry about that, even though it's good fat, as it were, it's still raising the whole thing and gets doctors very upset? I think the key thing there is it gets doctors very upset. (laughs) What saturated fat will do is that for some people, it raises their bad cholesterol, the LDL cholesterol, but that has been shown in clinical trials of any length to be a transient uh, effect, a small and transient effect. So I think that's, I think that's basically not an issue. I think it's also true that your LDL cholesterol is very poorly associated with your long-time heart attack risk. Just as many people have heart attacks with high LDL as people with low LDL cholesterol. So it's not as strong a predictor as I think we've generally been told. It's favored by the pharmaceutical industry because they have drugs to lower it. And that really distorts our understanding of it because there's a vast financial incentive 
them to focus on LDL cholesterol. As opposed to HDL or triglycerides. Because they could never find, they tried and failed to find drugs that would raise HDL. And so they've moved away from focusing on HDL. They have no drugs for them. So there's no financial incentive to focus on that. And triglycerides also, there's very ineffective drugs. There's some drugs that will lower basically your high triglycerides, but they're not very effective for preventing heart attacks. I think it's maybe in secondary level prevention. But so there's a focus that there's, an, there's I think, an unnecessary focus on LDL cholesterol due to this, to the industry amassed, the pharmaceutical industry amassed behind that particular risk factor. A hyper responder, which is what that would be called, is that's just a term we don't need to worry about? Hyperresponder is different. What I'm saying is in the mainstream population, there's a small and transient rise. And for most people, they don't need to worry about it. There are, there's a category called lean mass hyperresponders, super fit people who upon going upon a, key, you know, a ketogenic diet, higher in saturated fats, see their LDL rise a lot, like a huge amount, like a worrying amount to numbers that are really seem very uncomfortable. David Feldman is the person to consult on that. He's doing an experiment on it. I think I think the short answer that is is should provide maybe a modicum of comfort until Dave Feldman's experiment is concluded is just to say those people, like if there are 22 or 23 heart disease risk factors, let's say we're referring to the trial that Verda funded that was led by Dr. Sarah Helberg. 22 risk factors for heart disease are going in the right direction, like reduced inflammation and everything moving in the right direction, only LDL moving in the wrong direction. So I think that that makes you wonder, should we only focus on LDL then when everything else looks better? Did you want to say something else about that, Chrissy? I just really appreciated it because I think sometimes people, maybe it is necessarily the ketogenic field that can paint with a broad brush to eat sticks of butter and, you know, that there is some, a subset of the population. I just had my DNA done and it showed that my APOA2RS5082 gene, I just don't process saturated well, fat well at all. My body doesn't. And so that it can be true for some people that, you know, to monitor how they feel in their body and maybe the carnivore or the ketogenic food way of eating is not going to be beneficial for them in that. But I loved how you said, I'm not saying eat a stick of butter. You're really just saying choose to use saturated fat over the seed and plant oils. That's that that's always going to be a better choice, but to be mindful of consumption and not to just drink it like some people are all the time, especially if you're feeling a physical response to it. I guess the one exception I would make is that when people are coming off of a high carbohydrate junk food diet or they're they're encountering this whole way of eating for the first time, it's a radical change for those people and they are craving carbohydrates or sugar in you know, like crazy. And for those people having higher fat, really like a bowl of whipped cream, or that is the only thing that is what keeps them from their cravings. And I think that is fine. <laughs> That's fine. At some point, people start losing weight. People start seeing health results. You get down to, you're trying to lose the last 15, 20 pounds or something. Then the fat calories start making more of a difference, or then your body has shifted metabolically too. So I, I truly believe there are different diets 
that are appropriate depending on where you are on your metabolic journey. Yeah, I think that's a very good distinction to make, especially if the concept that calories do actually matter, but that's after everything else. And that's when you're really tweaking at the very end. Yes. I just believe that's just, look, that's based on my knowing people in the field and hearing thousands and thousands of stories, but I'm not sure that's really based on any, on a clinical trial evidence, but that's really what I hear and see out there. All right. So there you are. You came out with this book, A Big Fat Surprise. And it sounds like you got a lot of response, positive response, because you became a bestseller. What about the negative response? Do you want to tell us about that? The push yeah. from either the food industry or the academic, the medical industry? There was a professor, I don't want to say professor, but a doctor at Yale who was kind of loosely affiliated with Yale University, who ran a center at a nearby hospital, who went after me in a pretty big way, writing like a series of really nasty, like even before my book came out, in response to the, oh, I had a cover story for the weekend section of the Wall Street Journal based on my book, and he went after that. Like he, he just, he called me like a wingnut who is, must be like living in my mother's basement. And he just, he had so... He, I can't even remember all of the insults he hurled at me, but animal like no one's ever seen before, or he was unbelievable in his attacks. I eventually had to write the editor of the Huffington Post saying, I think that this might be called like libel. I really was not experienced in this and you better cut it out. And he did. And then he used to, his way of referring to me was like, Ms. Butter, Meat and Cheese. Yeah, I had attacks. There were attacks. He was the most concentrated in his attacks. There was also a huge effort. I wrote a cover story from the BMJ, the British Medical Journal, that was really the first ever serious critique of the U.S. dietary guidelines totally naive to think that me and the editor-in-chief of the British Medical Journal thought this was like a great muckraking story, breakthrough story. And we were just horribly naive. We had, there was the biggest ever retraction effort against that paper, which came out in, again, a cover story in 2015. And more than 200 scientists or researchers signed an a letter asking to retract that story based on errors that they couldn't even when asked nobody knew why they were at they had just been, it was like a it was like a chain letter please sign this letter and nobody knew what the problem with the story was it turned out there was one genuine error but there was nothing that detracted from any of the central allegations of the article and after a year long review the editor in chief of the british medical journal wrote an editorial saying this is an important piece it stands we're not retracting it it's crucial that we have this kind of common this kind of analysis yeah and there have been other attacks there was a whisper campaign against me led by marian nessel it was a very whisper too so she's she goes around. I actually got one of these emails to, to show it. She goes around telling reporters that I'm employed by the meat industry. And she just, I don't know if there's any truth to this, but this is what I hear. And she she calls people who are on my board to say, oh, I hear Nina's connected. You should get off the board. There's been a lot of there's been a lot of attack. What can I say? I don't know what you said, this new set of attacks against me. I can't even remember what the latest ones are. I've been disinvited from a conference or two. I think that the, the, from the Washington Post article 
a t- Tamar Hospital. I don't know when that came out. Don't believe the backlash. Saturated fats are actually bad for you. And that was an attack against, she didn't mention me in that article, but it was uh, sort of an attack on my work. That was a terrible piece of work in which she denies that any of the, there were unsaturated fat, there were clinical trials on 67,000 people, which is like the greatest number of people that have been tested on any single hypothesis in the history of nutrition science. And this is all the test to test whether saturated fats cause heart disease. And again, clinical trials, the gold standard, the grade 1A evidence, she ignored all of that evidence in her piece. And I now write a column called Unsettled Science on Substack, and maybe there will be a link in your show. But I wrote about that column because she basically is denying the evidence. Like she denies this entire body of clinical trial literature exists. And I think that's a tactic. I think the American Heart Association did the same thing. The U.S. Dietary Guidelines Systematic Review did the same things. They basically, they're denying, and the World Health Organization did the same thing, where they basically are denying the entire clinical trial literature on saturated fats. Just to, I just want to take a second here, if you don't mind. Yeah. That clinical trial literature was denied in the 1960s and 70s when it was done. And all these clinical trials were done. Massive, ambitious, huge experiments by Aust- in Australia, England, Finland, in Norway, in the U.S. Huge clinical trials. They didn't come out the way anybody expected. They didn't show that saturated fat caused heart disease. They were buried, unpublished, not recognized, not cited in systematic reviews. There's a lot of evidence here. Some of them, one study sitting in the basement of the NIH, National Institutes of Health, and never published. What Gary Taubes, with his book, Good Calories, Bad Calories, did, and my book, was to bring these trials to light. We pierced them. like We gave them life again. Scientists started looking at them, started analyzing them, realizing, oh, we have all this data on saturated fats. What? Why we didn't know about it? Because it had been buried. Now, almost 15 years later, since Gary's and my books, or to varying different degrees, there are almost 25 systematic reviews or meta-analyses of the data on saturated fat by independent teams of scientists all over the world looking at these 67,000 people who've been tested on that hypothesis. And all of those papers conclude saturated fats do not cause heart disease. They have no effect on cardiovascular mortality. They have no effect on total mortality. You know, the ones on heart disease, Yeah. So that's mainly a a little bit of wobbliness around the heart disease results. All of that literature is being now ignored. And there's an attempt, I believe, I can't say there's an active attempt, but what I see happening is, is people talking about saturated fats and pretending these trials don't exist. So it's like they're trying to rebury them rebury them so you have brought them up and there's still i was going to say what's happened in the last 10 years it sounds like not much there's still a continuum well, um, a lot happened there are those 25 systematic reviews and meta-analyses but it's like the industry or whoever's out there who doesn't want saturated fats liberated many different interests are involved vested interests want to rebury it it's okay gary Taubes, nina teichel's 25 paper. Can we deny that exists? Can we try to move forward and pretend that never happened? Literally, the World Health Organization just came out with a paper on saturated fats last year that pretends the clinical trial literature doesn't exist. Wow. So how do you feel about this? You've put a lot of effort into this and now you've got research and you still see uh, sort of big science trying to bury this. Yeah, I think we all confront right now in in the world a pretty serious situation when it comes to 
having science, being able to debate the science, being yes. able to talk about it, being able to have like open debates that are not and like not having a kind of top down approach to science, but allowing different voices to be heard. We're not just on the subject of saturated fats, but on a number of different topics. We're in, I yes. think, Whole cancel culture thing you're talking about. Cancel culture and censorship and a kind of an authoritarian approach to science, which is we are the experts and we it's a top-down exercise, which science is anything but that. Like I think we face that now in any in a number of different areas. Like we're in a risky moment in in I think in in world history. Can we talk about addiction? So Food Junkies is all about food addiction and sugar addiction. Do you have any comments about addiction in terms of fat addiction or just in general food addiction? Yeah, let me just say on fat addiction, which has been proposed as a, a thing. I read a paper on that and I looked at all the data in tremendous detail. There is some mouse data on that, but I think that's a, I don't see data to support that as a as something that I would call a, uh, like a, an evidence-based scientific concept. Let me put it that there. There's a tiny bit of mouse data, but it's conflicting. And I just don't see it. I just, and fat does not induce cravings the way that sugar and carbohydrates do. I don't think fat addiction is an evidence-based idea. Sugar and carbohydrate addiction is, those are extremely real. There are people who can talk about that better than I can, but what can I say? I think that, like, I'm very pleased that they're being recognized. I know there's an effort to have them actually, those addictions be, be formalized as a actual addiction along with others, such as tobacco addiction. I think that's justified. I think those, they do, they're just as addicting as drugs for some people. I think the one thing that was interesting to me when I, maybe this is relevant, it's just a kind of anecdote, but I think when people feel like they will never be unaddicted from sugar or carbs, and I think I was one of those people, I really loved sweets. Like I absolutely was a chocolate addicted. I just was insanely addicted to sugar. It's unimaginable to the average person that they could not crave sugar. And I think, so one of the things that is, I think it's not really a scientific concept, but it is true that your palate does shift. Like you can't imagine that your whole mouth will feel differently and will react differently to food, but you're, it is a real thing that your palate genuinely shifts once you start changing your diet. Yeah. I think we've experienced that too. I do want to say about fats though, fats are a perfect medium for carbohydrates, like throw fats and carbohydrates, carbohydrates together. You've got perfect dessert so that's a so that's a dick but then the question is which one do you what do you cut out it's like exactly sugar the answer is not to cut out the fat fat is not the problem there exactly exactly it's just holding the sugar and i think even clinically when i see people who are reporting oh i'm over consuming fat it's in combination with carbohydrate and that is where the addictive process or the addictive eating is taking place it's not just like people are just can't stop eating butter or anything like that alone something like that. So I think that is very important to add. Yeah, those the, that's been shown that fat and carbohydrate together are very appealing foods. And we don't we don't need science to tell us that. You just look at what your grandmother what did she put in the cookies that you couldn't resist whenever you went to her house. That was that's 
It's just fat and sugar are really at the core of those addictions. And I am sure you know that that's also why nuts are really addicting and people can overeat on them. It's the only food, nuts and seeds are the only foods where you find really fat and carbohydrate in significant amounts together. Right on. Yes. Yes. But again, like, what do you have to get rid of? You have to get rid of the carbohydrate and then you can, your fat alone is not addictive, okay. but carbohydrate alone is addictive. Yes. So your book came out 10 years ago, and then you've been, sounds like working with this, this researcher, bring, trying to bring it forward. What have you been doing since then? What are you doing now to continue the, fight, the good fight? So one of the things that I did was to start this non-for-profit called the Nutrition Coalition, which is, it really is the only group in the world still that is trying to, that's focused on trying to reform dietary policy so that it is evidence-based. In the U.S., it varies in different by country, but in the U.S., our dietary guidelines, which have been with us now for 40 years, are just the single most influential lever on what people think is healthy, what kids eat in schools, what food is produced, what the military eats, what people are fed in nursing homes, hospitals. They're just incredibly influential. And in every one of these sectors, we have a tremendous obesity and now diabetes and other diet-related disease problem epidemics that continue to rise. And so really, I was the first person to come out and really start a campaign to say, it's not, the problem is not that we're not following the dietary guidelines enough, which is the standard line. The problem is we follow those dietary guidelines. We have shipped, we eat 30% more carbohydrate than we did in 1965 and 20% less, less fats as a percentage of calories. We eat more fruits, more vegetables. We eat more whole grains, more vegetable oils. We eat 28% less red meat. These are all numbers from 1970 to 2014, I think. We eat less, fewer eggs, less butter. We have done a good job of following the guidelines, but those guidelines themselves need to be called into question. And they're 50 to 55% carbohydrate. That's too high for most people. It drives these diseases. They include, they require six servings of grains a day, including three servings of refined grains every day and up to 10% of calories of sugar. That's a healthy diet. So really been alone in trying to not only point out that's not a healthy diet, but to reveal the lack of evidence for these guidelines, which is to say zero clinical trials support these dietary guidelines. And when they finally, just recently they did, you can argue when the first clinical trial on the dietary guidelines took place, but let's just, there was this one very highly controlled clinical trial where they gave people the dietary guidelines to a T and they measured their adherence to the guidelines. So it's people on the guidelines versus people who had what was basically a junk food diet. And I mean like higher sugar, higher refined carbohydrates, jelly, beans was an all day condiment. And the people in the dietary guidelines, except for on one measure of blood pressure, looked no better at the end of this trial compared wow. to like basically a junk food diet. So our job has been to point out the lack of evidence for these guidelines. We were able to get Four National Academy of Sciences reports really showing, documenting the lack of proper methodology, lack of transparency. I did a paper with a bunch of co-authors showing that 95% of the last expert dietary guideline advisory committee had a tie with a food or pharmaceutical company. That's 95% of the committee. More than half of the committee had 30 such ties or more. So we've done a lot of work to just advance this issue and kind of document the problems with the guidelines 
So, can I just ask you something? So, as you're talking, I keep thinking about Marianne Nessel because we interviewed her, and she also has strong criticisms about the guidelines and about the food industry. But it seems to me that you've taken a more radical step because she loves the Mediterranean diet. I think you've questioned the research even more. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, Marianne Nessel is considered like the queen of food politics, and she she was on one of the dietary guideline advisory committees, she might criticize them in some ways, but she basically defends them. She has been, when she, and she defends the seven country study and she thinks a low fat diet high in fruits, vegetables, grains, and low fat, everything is the right diet. So she's basically, a, she presents herself as being anti-industry and in some areas she is but she is basically defending the status quo diet. And if any of her friends are found to be receiving hundreds of thousands of dollars from the food industry, as her friend Walter Willett has and the Harvard School of Public Health, she'll say things like, oh, I'm so sorry my friends do that. I wish they wouldn't do that. There are limits to what she will criticize and she won't really evolve with the evidence. She has, she's still for a low fat, high grain diet. So what can I say? And that is not where the evidence lies these days. Okay. And you're definitely pushing for the evidence. That's the whole point of your organization. Yeah. That's the only way you can move forward is with evidence-based science. And I would say if we don't have the evidence, let's just say we don't know. That's fine. You don't know everything. The original sin, I think, or the original mistake was the American Heart Association to make a recommendation when the science was weak. Because it's like the falsehood travels all around the world and back before the truth can even get its boots on. Once something becomes solidified into policy, adopted as policy, it is almost impossible to retract. That's basically what we face, like institutionalized bad science, which has become very difficult to unravel. There's just as a tiny example, think of all the food contracts for the schools. Who's going to say to Kellogg's cereals, actually, we don't want you to earn billions of dollars giving our child Dora the Explorer cereal for breakfast. We're going to take that away from you. That times a billion is what we're facing in terms of the entrenchment of food and pharma in this established system. Okay, so give us some hope. We've got you speaking out. We've got Robert Lustig speaking out. We've got people speaking out. But at the same time, there's this mammoth Goliath that's stopping us. What hope have we got here? I think there's, let me just give two, like two windows of hope. One is that the grassroots movement of which you are a part is strong. I think the number of people who are, it's just, it's incredible to see this movement spread. It's just undeniable. Like people are, and it's undeniable if you lose 50 pounds, your neighbor's going to be like, hey, what's that about? How did you do that? It's a little different now with Wugovi and all these shots, but uh, I still think the grassroots movement is tremendously strong and growing. And I think the other area for hope is, is the overreach of the food and pharmaceutical industries now has led a lot of people to be skeptical in ways that they never have before. Like real overreach in terms of trying to say, I don't know, just trying to promote, like there's a product that just came out with saying, oh, the best thing to do is have like our sweetened cereal before dinner, for you know, before bedtime as a way to sleep from the newest thing from one of the food companies. But I really mean like more largely in the pharmaceutical company, with the pharmaceutical industry, there's a lot more doubt 
And there are presidential elections coming up in the United States. And a number of candidates are really interested in this issue because it really lies. It lies in the same wheelhouse as a number of other issues having to do with response to COVID and other issues where Americans are in a profound state of uncertainty and distrust. And so I think that this will start to become part of the questioning of authorities, public health authorities generally. I see it moving into that area. And I think we'll see that over the like the next six months or so. No, I love that so much. And there was just this Netflix show, Painkiller, that came out about Purdue and the Oxycontin kind of whole controversy. And I hope that does create some skepticism around these WIGAV and the different GLP-1 drugs that are these miracle drugs, the same way that Oxy was the miracle for pain, to question these things and how they are like promoted by the pharmaceutical company. So I'm wondering, Nina, what is next for you? I have a, this Substack column called Unsettled Science that I'm writing with Gary Taubes now. I'm in like the last stages of actually finishing a PhD. So I will have a PhD, hopefully. And it comes out of that. Actually, it's a PhD based on published work. So it's, I was able to get a PhD kind of based on all the work that I've done so far in the field, which is great. Or we'll see. That's hasn't quite happened yet. And then, yes, yeah, so I'm doing that column and I'm, I'm talking with a number of news sites. I want to move, do more journalism. I feel like this is a field where there's just not nearly enough journalism, not just science journalism, but on the terms of what is happening in terms of our global politics, there's so much going on that is not reported on. So I really look forward to spending more time reporting and maybe doing another book as well. But basically journalism, writing with Gary Taubes, and I'm still involved in the Nutrition Coalition. So I'm doing some of that as well. Awesome. I look forward to all of it. And I love your article on Substack too. I'm a subscriber, so I'm definitely a supporter. So I really enjoy that information that you and him share. Now we do have a signature question and we tailored it to you. So we ask if you could tell a younger version of yourself something about fat, fats in foods or the food industry, what would it be? Don't be an idiot and eat low fat food. <laughs> Nina, you're such a moron. <laughs> and don't avoid meat. That would be my other one. I love it so much because I had a very similar personal story as well. And I feel like looking back now, it's, yeah, no wonder I wasn't functioning optimally for however many years and everyone thought I was so healthy. So I just really appreciate you bringing that all to light because I know you've changed a lot of lives because of it. It really genuinely takes all of us to bring this forward and to touch people, give people information that helps them. Yeah. Thank you. Fabulous interview. Thank you so much for giving us your time and your wonderful book. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks to you both. Thanks for joining us this week on Food Junkies, Recovery from Food Addiction. Make sure to join our Facebook group, Sugar Free for Life Support Group, I'm Sweet Enough. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or Stitchers. That way you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Don't forget to pick up your copy of Dr. Tarman's book, Food Junkies, which is available on Amazon. If you have any additional questions, both Molly and Clarissa are food addiction professionals and work one-on-one -on -one with clients. You can find their websites and email addresses in the show notes. 
Be sure to tune in every Friday when our new episodes drop. As Vera loves to say, the power is ours. <laughs>